did something that I haven't done in such a long time, which is start over. A second recording uh, going now. And I'm not sure this one's going to be any better the first uh, 10 seconds or so. But uh, my goodness, that first take was pretty rough. Just coughing fit throughout it. I am Graham Daniels. Let me get to the intro. Uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapist and a co-author of a book relating to two topics in this podcast series, this being season two um, of a series, Getting Real About Sex Addiction. A psychodynamic or psychoanalytic, book says psychodynamic, so I'll go with that from now, uh, approach to treatment. It is published through Roman and Littlefield, prominent publisher. They've published on sex addiction before. I think I mentioned this once before. A book called The Myth of Sex Addiction, which is sort of an anti-sex uh, addiction book, kind of. David Lee is the author of that. Ours is not a, um, a, a, an anti-sex addiction book. By, by the way, say ours, I should say, once again, I am a co-author of Getting Real About Sex Addiction. My co-author, who was with me for the last podcast about borderline personality, not with me today, Joe Farley is his name. And uh, we wrote this book together. My idea, actually, I'll say that. But uh, we started it around 2018, finished it mm, somewhere in between 2020, 2021. Got it published last year, February of last year, actually. We just passed our first year anniversary of that. If I was putting in sound effect now, we'd have some applause, but that was at the beginning, along with the uh, spin cycle sound effect and the laughter sound effect to indicate that uh, sometimes we think we say things that are a bit funny here. And the spin cycle, the washing cycle, I put that in because I think that uh, some people think might I might be spinning ideas. I certainly think people in sex addiction field do a lot of spinning of ideas, so I imagine they might think the same of me. And today's topic is going to be something about which there has been plenty of spin, I think. Uh, this whole idea of the matter of an excuse. Is sex addiction an excuse? I could not believe when I look through the... Uh, I, I'm sure I have addressed this before. don't think Joe has, but I'm sure we have in bits and pieces. But I cannot believe that we hadn't had a podcast devoted to this particular subject. It's one of the cliches, chestnut arguments that I'm sure, you know, sex addiction specialists people who advocate for the condition or proselytize it. There are people who I probably think of it in those terms um, would say that, you know, they often feel like their niche field is being dismissed. Sex addiction treatment is a niche field of psychotherapy and certainly a niche field that psychoanal psychoanalysis has had um, little to say, at least as far as mainstream um audiences, consumers of psychotherapy are concerned. Actually, it's had a lot to say on the subject because just about everything in sex addiction treatment is derivative of psychoanalytic theory. That's one of the uh, motifs of this series, and some might argue spin uh, of the series. Anyway, 
Um, to get to the substance of my polemic today, which will be, I don't know, cover, cover a few bases. I am something of an agnostic about a about sex addiction. That doesn't mean I disbelieve it exists. It doesn't mean that I'm an advocate or proselytizer either. It means I have a little critical distance is what I mean. Is sex addiction real? Now, that's part of the title of the book, Getting Real About Sex Addiction. So, yes, of course, it's real. But, um, you know, psych what's in psychic reality, what's in subjective reality uh, versus what is scientific reality or material reality, those are some of the questions. I am inclined to think that there is a psychic reality and there's room for subjective reality in the field of uh, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy as well. I think that the condition is real insofar as it's authentic. It is, as they would say in recent times in the culture, a thing. Is it an excuse? Because I'm going to take seriously this, this question. First of all, it's a thing because, uh, at least from a psychoanalytic point of view, it is a symptom. Not everyone in the field thinks that. It is a substitute for a, an instinctual gratification. Not everyone in the field of psychotherapy knows even what I just said. Um, it is a displacement of needs onto a, an agent of addiction. Um, that is something that has kind of been said by a man credited with, uh, if not coining the term sex addiction, then certainly championing its cause, Dr. Patrick Cornsman. Carnes, Corns, anyway, Carnes, when he said that, um, you know, a sex addict is somebody who thinks of sex as his, he might have meant her, but he probably meant his most important need. And he was alluding to displacement by saying that that's, you know, obviously a fallacy. Uh, a sex addict has other needs, tenderness, attachment, all the things that we tend to think of as being more wholesome other than sex. Anyway, displacement. Uh, means the displacing onto an addictive agent, sex, food, drugs, of course, alcohol, when the needs are uh, interpersonal or intrapsychic, as we say in psych psychoanalysis, they are internal. They're not simply for sensation. And I think above all, the idea that uh, I espouse or join here is the idea that addiction constitutes an avoidance. It's a, it's a agent of denial, uh, addiction as a phenomenon. Um, but to the central question, is it an excuse? So that, that cues, this idea of an avoidance cues the idea of an excuse because an excuse is another kind of avoidance. So any addiction is an excuse insofar as it is, in one sense, an avoidance of something. It is a part of a pattern, a habit of avoidance. And is one, you know, if, if one is active in addiction, if you're in the midst of your, you know, behavioral pattern, uh, you are not taking responsibility. And taking responsibility is probably one of the basic values that are cut across uh, contexts, cut across subcultures in our larger society. And certainly, I think, is a value, a therapeutic value. You take ownership, people say, in the culture today. And if you're 
in the midst of your addiction, or as people say, if you are, quote, in your addict, you are not taking ownership, you're not taking responsibility. Some things that are in the category of, uh, you know, addiction not being an excuse. Addiction is not an excuse in the sense that addiction doesn't uh, grant clemency uh, to individuals who pro- proclaim themselves addicts. Individuals who do that um, in the face of the legal system, for example. If you have gotten a DUI because of levels of intoxication, your sentence will not be lessened because of uh, if you're an alcoholic or if you identify as an alcoholic, you might get a sentence supplemented by recommendations to treatment. But in treating alcoholics, drug addicts, and sex addicts for over 20 years now, I've never heard of somebody who uh, plea bargained uh, a DUI by simply saying that they were an alcoholic. So it doesn't, proclaiming yourself an addict does not yield clemency in legal circles. I've never heard certainly of, um, say, a sex offender having their, uh, you know, case dismissed or a sentence, you know, mitigated if they claim that they were also a sex addict. So, you know, of course, in a personal context, between couples and personal relationships, sex addiction can be used as an excuse. You know, if it's the pretext for demanding more sex, or, I don't know, a certain kind of sex, paraphilias as they are designated in the Diagnostic Standards Manual, that's the modern term for what used to be called perversions, or might still be by, you know, old school psychoanalysts. Anyway, if if a person is demanding sex or justifying a violation of consensual agreements, you know, come back to that phrase, and, you know, saying they want more sex because they're a sex addict, then yes, that's employing the sex addict concept as an excuse because that person is looking to, you know, leverage something, looking to leverage uh, an advantage, you know, a privilege. Most of the people I see, I, I will grant to you know any listener, comment, you know, commentator of whatever kind, that my sample is skewed because I tend to see people in the context of treatment, <clears throat> in the context of what they might call recovery from you know sex addiction, and the most people I see, most men certainly anyway, uh, in treatment are no longer using, you know, sex addiction as an excuse in the sense that I was just talking about. They are taking responsibility. And they're taking responsibility by accepting some of the prescriptions, which they see as some of the consequences of having engaged in an an addictive pattern. They are participating in therapy or even analysis. You know, it's coming various um, frequencies, you know, per week. You know, psychoanalysis is, you know, an in-depth, you know, treatment model, of course. People attend psychoanalysis three, four times a week if they're in that. Anyway, or they attend a weekly group, support group, or in-depth, insight-oriented group. They go to 12-step meetings, the two most notable, 
well, actually three, if you think about it, the Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, the Sex Addicts Anonymous, the Sexaholics Anonymous. I think that covers the basis there. Um, they can get a sponsor for anyone who doesn't know. That's not a, that's kind of a lay counselor, somebody who is meant to be a guide uh, around the 12 step recovery model. This is language that cuts across, cuts across the 12 step recovery movement. You know, which dates back to uh, the 1930s, of course, with the original fellowship being Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, people who are taking responsibility, they spend a lot of time and sometimes a lot of money. They accept some sort of tertiary consequences, particularly sex addicts, like submitting to um, you know, polygraph exams, which are part of sort of disclosure exercises. They submit to... Uh, you know, certain expulsions, they get told to, you know, hit the, uh, hit the couch in the, uh, the main room or to leave the house. You know, I've heard variations of these depending on people's you know, economic situations, of course, but uh, it's very common for, you know, sex addicts who have been discovered or, in, or who are sometimes termed as being in early recovery, particularly male sex addicts, to be sent to what they dub the doghouse, doghouse being a very kind of masculine-oriented, um, you know, metaphor here. And they're not using, um, the, they're not using sex addiction as an excuse, and they are certainly not being excused by what are typically dubbed impacted or betrayed partners. Um, but there are lots of subtler forms of excuse in terms of, you know, clemency or compassion or what we might call understanding. Sex addicts go to treatment or they go to 12-step meeting, you know, understandably wanting and deserving to some degree, of course, um, some compassion or understanding. Clemency is a, you know, a different kind of con concept that suggests something legalistic. But what at least sex addicts look for and I think uh, it's reasonable to expect is some uh, mitigation of negative judgments such that they can begin to explore you know what their pattern of behavior has been about whether it's been over the course of you know months years and so on and so but the judgments that are typically aimed at sex addicts they, they come from a, cr a sort of cross-section of influences some are Sociopolitical, in my view, some are sort of born of a scientific debate as to what is, you know, what addiction really is, uh, whether it's you know, a subset of a medical construct that is otherwise, you know, termed dependency, you know, whether it should really be called, you know, sex addiction, you know, versus something that would fall under a kind of, you know, moral or ethical umbrella. And it's sociopolitical because I think the judgments around the certainly the ethics of you know, sexually addictive patterns or sexually addictive behaviors are they kind of cut across the political divide. And I think it's interesting that um, the sex addiction treatment field, I think, represents something of an uneasy alliance between uh, conservatism, traditionalist biases. And more progressive, sometimes termed social justice values. 
you know, to touch on the latter um, first, perhaps, sex addiction is deemed unethical because, well, porn addicts, which are a subset of sex addicts uh, or prostitution seekers, are deemed to be exploitative, you know, objectifying of the subjects of their, you know, their voyeurism and plus that they are paying for sex. Um <clears throat> economizing sex in the way that um, we, we find vulgar. And, you know, I think people across political divides uh, find that immoral or unethical behavior. You know, in addition to that, you know, from a kind of traditionalist or conservative point of view, sex addiction is unethical because it violates, you know, monogamistic principles or as progressives would prefer to say, consensual uh, agreements. Now, you know, so the notion in sex addiction treatment, I don't think it's exclusive to sex addiction treatment, but it's often used in this context, of a perpetrator of, say, emotional abuse. A sex addict is perpetrating emotional abuse, uh, not singularly because... Um, you know, the, the sex addict is exploiting people, exploiting uh, sex workers, for example, but rather because they are violating consensual uh, agreements as well as persistently lying, what's dubbed gaslighting. Um, I would suggest, you know, to get into, come back to the excuse and touch on the no concept of marriage here, you know, we violate such agreements, consensual agreements, but a lot of things. You know, people who become addicted to video gaming, gambling, drug use, um, even something like hoarding, um, are, you know, violating some kind of consensual agreement, you'd say, in the sense that no one ever agreed to be in relationship or you know, submit their life circumstances to a person who engages in those behaviors. But the problem is, you know, we never as a society or I can't think of a society that ever, you know, codified those kinds of problems into marriage vows. We never fashioned vows where somebody was saying, you know, I, I forsake video gaming, for example, or the other things that I mentioned. And, and so because sex addiction treatment field places such an emphasis upon this, this violation of consensual agreements. They try to make it sound non-traditionalist. They're more progressively minded, try to by making it about consent. Um, but they rather dodge this point um, that it is ultimately about uh, monogamy. It is, they, they try to, you know, dodge the traditionalist bias, but uh, they incorporate it. And, you know, most of the people who present for treatment who are impacted partners or betrayed partners, what's at least implicit is the idea that the sex addict has violated a consensual agreement and they mean a monogamous agreement. And they are not all of them, but many of them are in, um, including you know, porn use, or at least certainly regular porn use. Um, as a violation of that kind of agreement. 
But, you know, speaking of, of marriage, you know, vows are relevant to the excuse issue implicitly um, because also because of the so-called disease aspect of addiction. You know, you often hear that addiction is disease. You go to Sex Addicts Anonymous or any 12-step program, they'll talk about addiction as a disease. And this particularly with respect to uh, alcoholism and substance dependence, you know, has some allies in the medical establishment. Plenty, actually. And when people are talking about uh, a disease concept, they're talking about people having a predisposition to, uh, you know, compulsive addictive behaviors, that the disease is progressive, meaning it's just going to get worse and worse and lead, if you think of the language in 12-step literature, it leads to jails, institutions, and death. Um, it has a defined, you know, syndrome or symptoms, you know, withdrawal, tolerance, things that have not really proven with respect to uh, sex addiction. But even beyond that, more fundamentally, it means that you're sick, that you can't help what's happening to you. And as a result of that, you know, you deserve compassion. You deserve understanding. Above all, you deserve you know, wait for it, forgiveness. So, you know, there are those who, you know, who want forgiveness for their sex addiction sins, I might as well call it, because I think we're entering into religious territory here. And those who are impacted or betrayed partners feel a sort of counter-pressure, I think. There's a lot of pressure on sex addicts is what I initially mean. But a counter-pressure to, you know, accept the disease model um, because they're meant to forgive. Forgiveness being, you know, something you're, you're meant to do if you're a kind, compassionate sort of person. And I think there's also, you know, a meta reason why the disease concept is controversial that isn't covered, and I'm going to, you know, represented here relating to marriage vows um, because if you get married and you and you're supposed to you know commit your life to someone you're meant to do so if you think of the marriage vows stick together in sickness or in health that's what you promise to do that's what you vow to do and everybody well not everybody but most people are familiar with those words you know, in sickness or in health, which has implications then if you think of addiction as a sickness, because that's what you committed to. If you are a sex addict who chose to get married and or if you're, you know, an impacted partner of a person and you got married, you chose to stick with them in sickness and health. So what does that mean if they are an addict? How are you going to insist that they take responsibility for that? Plus, in traditional marriage vows anyway, you promised, agreed to forsake all others, which again might include, or this might vary, but would, would include pornographic images. I don't know. You know, is, you know, marriage changing? I think it is in a lot of ways. You know, I went to a couple of weddings just um, 
offer a bit of an anecdote here earlier. No, last year now. It's now in 2023. And I went to a pair of weddings where I did not hear the sickness or in health. People were making up their own vows, one of those kind of weddings. Um, and also, nor did I hear the forsake all others. These were non-traditional weddings with, you know, ordained ministers, non, uh, what is it called? Non-denominational ministers. And I, instead, I heard, you know, phrases like, you know, I vow or I promise to, quote, accept you for the way you are, to which I thought, wow, that's latitude, right? That's some serious rope to play with there, I think. I'm not sure, but one of, at least one of the weddings might have been of a, a polyamorous, you know, couple. Anyway, um, to sort of conclude this idea, uh, we are we don't like, and I think opinions vary on this, when uh, moral choice is diluted, when free will is subordinated to uh, you know, medical conditions, or, and I think this is more the focus of this discussion, when unethical choices are cast as medical disability. That's what we think is an excuse. Forgetting all things that have to do with, uh, you know, whether somebody is legalistically, you know, excused from behavior. You know, we have choices. We don't have to get married. We don't have to be monogamistic. We don't even have to be heterosexual. You know, we're just pressured to be those things. And by the way, that pressure is variable in its strength, depending on who you are and what your life circumstances are. And so decisions of how to be, how to act, what choices to make, ethical, moral, are variably difficult. So there it is, my relatively short statement on the matter of an excuse. I, to, to be succinct in conclusion, I don't think sex addiction in itself as a label that at least in popular culture has existed for around 40 years, roughly, maybe a bit longer, but as a concept has undoubtedly lived much longer. I don't think it is an excuse, but it, like anything else, can be employed as such. Um, thank you for listening. I'll get my colleague and co-author Joe Farley back here again soon to discuss more about personality disorder in an upcoming podcast. In the meantime, if you're interested, like what you hear, uh, perhaps click on the link um, that uh, exists alongside this podcast. It's to the book entitled Getting Real About Sex Addiction, A Psychodynamic Approach to Treatment. covers a lot of bases, a lot of issues like uh, what I'm talking about tonight. And it's published by uh, the prominent uh, outfit, Roman and Littlefield. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. Uh, please tune in next time.